0: So, are we talking about some DRB today?
1: That's the plan. Derb.
2: Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 98 of the Ruby Roads Podcast. This week on our panel we have James Edward Gray. Good morning everybody. Josh Susser. Hey, good morning from San Francisco. Katrina Owen.
3: Hello from Denver.
2: Bob Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I'm looking forward to hearing about distributed regexes. We also have a special guest and that's Davey Stevenson. I can't see your last name on here.
1: Yes, Davey Stevenson. I'm from Portland, Oregon.
2: All right. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly since you haven't been on the show before?
1: Sure. Uh, so I work for a company called Elemental Technologies uh, up in Portland, Oregon. We do video transcoding software. Um, I have been coding Ruby and Rails for, oh, let's see, what it's 2008 to 2013. So that's, if I can do math correctly, five years.
4: Awesome. That, that's really cool. And you and you gave a talk at RubyConf last year, right?
1: Yes, I did. It was my first uh, big talk at a conference, um, and it was on DRB and uh, RabbitMQ.
4: Yeah, that was a good talk. I I watched the video for it. Unfortunately, I missed it when I was uh, in Denver, Um, but that was a good talk. I liked it. It was a good talk.
1: Well, thank Uh, you.
2: So, which one won?
1: The moral of the story is that both win. (laughs) Oh, you're
2: one of those people.
1: (laughs) <laughs> it's it's gets like a ribbon.
2: that's right. It's like kids soccer, right? Well, you got six goals and you got two goals, but you both won.
1: Well, it was really more to use the right tool for the right job, and um, that uh, DRB can solve a lot of your problems. And eventually, you may have to scale up and and replace those components with other things like RabbitMQ, for example.
4: I think that's a a great way to solve that problem just in general, that you don't necessarily where they say you, know, you don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. That you know, if there's right. part of something that's not working, you fix that part, you don't have to give up every it's like you know, it's like you wouldn't throw out rails just because uh, you know, the XML support isn't working right.
2: So when there's you know. there are trade-offs, you don't trade everything? Oh, it depends.
4: <laughs> we <laughs> kinda struggle car, with
0: we kinda <laughs> struggle with that though, don't we? Like we have that tendency to overreach, I think, to look deep into the future and try to change everything that needs changing, right, instead of changing just the one minimal part.
2: Yeah, we, we actually went through that with uh, one of my clients. They decided that they were going to switch over to JRuby and Torquebox, and so it was like this big, huge, massive change instead of, you know, maybe a measured, well, we're just going to have it, you know, be the web server for, for now, and then we'll move, you know, our, our queuing and, and job uh, system over you know in a little bit and use their queue but no they they just went whole hog and then we had all these problems trying the, to get everything to switch so so
4: uh it seems we're wandering down a tangent davy is there is there something you want to say about the you know about the situation you described in the talk to just sort of tie it all up
1: uh, well, I guess yep. one of the topics that we were going to talk about was how useful DRB can be as a hacker's tool, and um, that's kind of uh, how we initially used it, is it's really easy to prototype things using DRB, uh, get things up and running really quickly, mainly because DRuby can allow you to do distributed programming uh, at the same time that it's hiding pretty much all of the implementation and networking issues from you, which is one of its really great benefits.
3: So one of the things we forgot to do today is uh, define a few terms. Could could we have a definition for DRuby?
1: Sure, sure. That's a great idea. So um, DRuby is a tool that is bundled uh, within Ruby core. It's limited to Ruby. So it's a distributed programming language. So it allows two different Ruby processes to talk to each other and share state and objects between those two different processes, and those can be processes on the same computer or on different computers. Uh, and so they they can uh, talk over the network to other processes. Uh, so it's 100% written in Ruby, and um, no IDL is required if you've done other uh, distributed programming. And it acts very much like Ruby in a lot of ways. It looks up methods at execution time, and... Um, tries to pass by reference as much as possible and things like that. So what is the typical problem that this solves? Well, it can really help with multi programming. If you have different processes or you're trying to spin up multiple different um, processes to run on different cores, for example, and, you know, w- in Ruby, we may be using this a lot more than maybe other languages because uh, our threading support doesn't really uh, allow us to um, take advantage of all the CPU cores, as other languages might. So in order to get around this, you might spin up multiple different processes, and in order to have those processes talk together, um, you need some some mechanism.
0: Right, so if you fork a process, right, t- traditionally you might, before you do the fork, you know, create some pipe, and then do the fork, and then now you're basically at ground zero where you have to decide, okay, now how do these two things communicate with each other, Right or alternatively you can fire up a DRB object on both sides and just start calling methods and you're done right yeah. I
4: mean so, so this is kind of an amazing magic trick and the you know, the first time I saw this this done in a language was like oh my god that, wow that's amazing that, so the, the to contrast this style of uh, distribution it's you know one of the things that people typically do is you know if you're doing UNIX programming you'll just like open a socket to another, another process and start shoving bits down a pipe at it. And you, know, you can do whatever you want over that socket, so it's just a, a wire protocol. So how does the, the DRB style of distributed programming differ from that very standard sort of, oh, let's just, just open a, a socket to another process and start shoving bits back and forth?
1: Uh, right, so uh, I think DRB is a lot friendlier, especially for someone um, new to this style of programming. So the, it's, you know, it's really easy to uh, fire up a DRB server within a process and then once you attach some data to that server, another process can create a simple DRB object, pass it in the correct uh, URI of the server on the other process, and pretty much magically you have a reference to what looks to you in your Ruby code as that other object in that other process. And from there on out, you can write code using that reference um, just as if that wo- that object was local in your new process. And so it's, it's really straightforward and really easy to read uh, the code in order to do that. You don't have to do any fancy networking things. It does all that kind of magically. You don't have to worry about... The format of the data transfer between the sockets, that's all kind of magically taken uh, care of for you as well. So you're really just able to say, you know, these are the two objects I want to to share between these two different processes. And you can change them dynamically. And the other kind of cool thing that you can do with uh, DRuby that often is lacking in other sort of similar processes is that, it actually blurs a line a lot between the server and the client. The server can actually send stuff back to the client if you set things up correctly, which is kind of magical when you see that happen for the first time. You're like, how did that happen? And
0: DRB uses that to great effect. So for example, if you call some method that takes a block, right, you've got a problem there because the block's a closure, so obviously it needs the client-side environment. So actually DRB will fake that by sending a proxy to the other side and running it through the iteration on the other side, but calling back to the client to execute the block each time so that it executes with its closure environment, right? So it actually all just kind of magically works. It's very clever.
1: It is clever, and when you first start using it, it all seems like, you know, everything work is, works great. You can do whatever you want. It works fine. And it's only until you actually kind of try and see how it's it's doing it that you're like, this should never have worked. How is this possibly working? <laughs> um, and so that's kind of the point where you're like, this is just a magic trick. So, yes.
2: <laughs> so we, we talked about, you know, sharing it between two processes on the same machine. Um, my understanding is is you can also use DRB across machines, or across multiple yes, machines. Yes, you can. Mm-hmm. Is that... Hard? Is there any more to it than that, than doing it, you know, across uh, different processes?
1: No, it's very, very similar. So, uh, when you start up a, a DRB server, it gives you a URI, and that's, um, you know, the host name or IP address, um, of the machine that it's on and a port. And, um, you can link to that, um, you, you, you link to that server from, from anywhere. And, uh, and for the most part, the networking issues are, handled automatically for you. Uh, you, The only th- uh, minor tricks, of course, is if uh, you don't have DNS set up correctly, then you have to use the IP address uh, as opposed to the host name, but that is probably really a problem that DRB can't solve for you.
2: I was going to say, that that's more just common network, your network referencing issues, you know, DNS and is your firewall up and is that port open, you know, across the network and things like that.
1: Exactly.
0: Now, Davey, you won't have heard it yet because it just came out a few minutes ago. But last week we talked to, uh, Martin Fowler about, uh, patterns of enterprise application architecture. And as part of that conversation, we actually got to talking about distributed objects, which he's actually pretty down on the idea as far as like how he covered it in the book. And he
3: gave his reasons. Actually, Sorry, his ahead. first, first rule of distributed programming is don't right. do it. <laughs> don't do it. Well,
2: then, right. what's the second rule?
0: <laughs> you didn't state think,
3: a second rule. I don't think you need. <laughs> don't a tell anyone
4: rule. you did it.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: First rule of distributed objects is we don't talk about distributed objects. Yeah, um, basically. Okay, so uh, he 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 actually covered with this uh, pretty in depth. You know what his problems with it are, and it's basically two things. One that with it all happening kind of auto-magically, like it does in a DRB scenario, then you're not really aware of this deep price you're paying, right? Anytime you make a call over the wire or something like that, that's a big deal, right? It's a, it's an important thing that we have to be aware of. And of course that needs lots more error handling and stuff like that. And when it all just kinda happens automagically, then then we we're not paying attention to that important barrier. That was one thing he said. The other thing he said is that the way we do local objects versus the way we do remote objects are very different. Like locally, we want lots of little methods, you know, tiny uh pieces that we can work with, test easily, etc. But when we do uh, remote calls, we want very coarse-grained things. Like uh, so one of his examples is locally, if I have an address object, I want, you know, a uh, street address, city, state, zip. But remotely, I just want an address method that does all of them, because I don't want to pay that price of hitting four different things, right? How, mm-hmm. does, how does this play into DRB, do you think?
1: Uh, I think that's a really good topic to talk about, and... Um and I both agree and disagree with uh, with some of the statements that Martin Fowler said, and I'll explain that a little bit more. Um, and the first thing is that as Ruby developers, and pr- probably most of us are Rails developers, uh, the fact of the matter is is that we already do uh, distributed objects, and that is uh, using the database as uh, as where we're serving our objects from. And uh, so that's just kind of one thing that we are already paying that price uh, a lot of the time, and you can see that in how we structure the interface between the database and Rails and the way ActiveRecord does that. And it matches this whole coarse-grained um, concept that we're talking about. Um, obviously, you can make queries that are a little bit more selective, but the default is coarse-grained. As far as how that applies to DRB, um, I think that given the experience that I've had using DRB in an actual production environment, there is a lot of truth to that. And part of it is, you know, what are your, what are you actually using DRB for? And for us, we aren't using it necessarily to send objects back and forth. That's not really what we're doing. We're using DRB as a signaling mechanism, and so um, that's where uh, we're trying to send, you know, some small sub some small bit of data over to another process to tell it tell it to do something at a certain time, rather than sending some sort of behemoth object. So is and that almost like
5: a sending a message?
1: It is like sending a message, you know. So it's like kind of, you know, signal message, kind of the same sort of concept. So you're sending a much smaller s- subset of data in the experiences that we have had with DRB. Um, at this point, we try and stick to sending only Ruby primitives. So we're talking about, you know, sending hashes and arrays and integers and symbols and strings, um, not bigger objects. Because there there can be problems with that.
4: Okay, so so this is very much like uh, you're keeping it to value objects in the Goose terminology, right? The, so Goose is a growing object-oriented software, the Guided by Tests book, and the you know people people talk about value objects as uh, they're you know some value objects can be primitives or they can be um, fairly complicated, but they're basically the the contents of it are what decide the object, uh, not so much the identity.
0: It's that well, not the behavior, right? Isn't it more not the behavior?
4: Well, it's I, it's that it's like strings. I I it be, yeah. It's it's like strings. They can be different objects, but you compare them based on the the equivalence of their contents,
0: right? So yeah. those are yeah. the those are the dumb classes with just lots of attr readers, right? Where where you're just reading data out. Of it.
2: So so this kind of leads me to a question about how it works then. If, if I have an object of, of a type or class that's on one end of the wire and I send it over to the other end of the wire, does it have to know about that class? Or does it just get all of the context around that object?
1: So the way uh, DRuby works by default is that it will pass the object across the network and it doesn't care if the other side has that context at the time that it's sending it. However, um, just like Ruby, it looks up basically methods at execution time. So once you try and do something with that object, that's when um when the other side needs to have that object correctly defined. And DR- DRB does not um does not do any of that for you. So you have to have loaded up that class or that object or um in uh in that context already yourself.
2: Okay, so if you don't have that then passing the the literals or you know like hashes and arrays and strings and yeah big nums and all that stuff that that's where it really makes sense because then then it doesn't matter that the other side doesn't know what uh widget class is
1: exactly it's already gonna know what an array is um but um
2: I sure hope so
5: yeah yes exactly <laughs> unless unless you've monkey patched array
0: ouch. <laughs> And that's that's uh this is probably a good point to tie back into the Martin Fowler thing. He talked about preferring things like JSON and stuff, right? Because we we take it down to the primitives and stuff like that, which is basically what Davey's saying, right? We, when we send messages, we just send the simple primitives that we can count on being there. That
2: kind of yeah, but now now you're wandering down the path of what I think a lot of people do with like rescue and and you know Rabbit MQ and things like that, where you know, they serialize the object into YAML or JSON or something, and then, you know, they reinflate it on the other side with, you know, a comparable class or the same class. Is there a big difference between the two approaches? I mean, what 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 are the trade-offs there?
1: Right. I think there is a difference. And so, like, one of the, um, you know, we're talking about the the data that we're actually passing, passing through DRB, but we're not really talking about you know how were I'm using that data. Um, so the one really great thing that that DRB allows you to do is that you know you have this context over to this other process, and so f- so you're passing data, but f- but what it looks like to you as a programmer is that you're calling methods, and you're calling methods that are taking attributes, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the the values you know, that you're passing to the methods, that's going to be you know um, an attributes hash, right? But you're calling a method, and that method over in the other process is doing something um, possibly much more complex. And so that's uh, in 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 our situations, you know, we're using those methods on the on the other process are kicking off actions, spinning up new threads, and doing a lot more things. Um, but it's triggered by the other process.
0: So let me let me see if I understood what you're saying correctly. I think what you're saying is. You don't just build up some kind of you know normal object graph, you know, of, of what you need the process to do, and then connect DRB directly into that and start working. What you're saying is you build the normal object graph, then you paint a kind of generic interface on top of it, and you hook DRB to that generic interface. Am I understanding correctly?
1: Yeah, I think that uh, that explains it pretty well. Um, and we have uh so it might help a little bit more to kind of explain our situation a little bit in a little bit more detail so the the standard communication method we have is actually between the the rails server and a long running daemon process on uh on the box or on a different box so obviously you know rails uh, a single request you know lasts for just that that scope of the request it's not going to stick around any longer than that but if we're trying to um trying to do things you know that that kick off more longer running processes, that's where the the daemon on the box is handling all of that part of things. So the there is a basically kind of a, a class or object on the in the within the daemon that has has yeah an interface, a whole bunch of methods that are exposed through DRB that um, if you connect to that DRB server, you now have access to all of those methods. And those methods could be as simple as as telling you if it's up. That's actually one method that, that I always define on these objects is just def up true. And so you can call that once you, from another process, connect to that uh, DRB server, then you connect to that object and then you can call up on it. And it'll tell you if it's, if it's up or if it's not up.
2: If it's not awesome. up, does it? Raise an exception, or does it uh, just return like false or nil?
1: Uh, you'll get a DRB connection refused error, okay. and so in our code, we'll wrap that with a catch false.
2: Right, that's awesome. Mm-hmm.
4: So, Davy, you were talking about how DRB is really well suited for hacking. You know, it's like a hacker's tool, and that, you know, what you just described—it sounds like you know—it's not just like this big soup of of Ruby objects that you pretty quickly go from. Oh, okay, we just got a bunch of Ruby objects too. We have an interface that we've defined using these Ruby objects. And is the, you know, in your RubyConf talk, you talked about, sh- you know, switching from, uh, the, um, the DRB style of, of co- connectivity and communication to, uh, you're using RabbitMQ. And it is, is this like an evolution? of that process where you start with just random Ruby objects and can do whatever you want. And it's very flexible and it's great for prototyping. And then you, then you firm up this interface that you can use for more efficient communication. Is that, is it an extension of that process to move into some other non Ruby central communication technology?
1: I think I mean, so. That was a really long question, so I kind of yeah, so forgot let, the let, beginning
4: let, once you got let, to the end. Let, 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 let me get back. Let me you know turn that rambling discussion into an actual question. Uh, there's this process where you went from sort of prototyping to firming up an interface, and it's still in Ruby using DRB. And is the you know, is the transition from DRB and you know Ruby only to some other technology is that an, is that just sort of more of the same? Or is it, or is it like turning a corner and going a totally different direction?
1: I mean, I think that depends on, um, on the particular instance. Um, for us, you know, the, in order to, to pull in RabbitMQ, it, it did involve a decent amount of refactoring of how we, how we are thinking about, uh, communication. Um, and that is because, you know, DRB makes it, Makes it very easy, and it's very very flexible, and you can change things really easily. Uh, when you're pulling in some of these other tools, you have to, I think, plan it out a lot more. And that, of course, is always the the transition between you know the really flexible kind of oh you can do whatever you want to something that's that's a lot more structured, and um, and that's where you know you're getting the benefit of um, of the more. Uh, sophisticated tools out of that structure. So I think there's always, you know, it's never a complete uh, dra- uh, drop-in replacement.
0: Right, you go from, like, just waiting on someone to call methods on you to, oh, now there's this queue out there that I need to pull data from, right?
1: Right, and you have oh. to actually kind of specify um, the the, commu- the data that you're going to be passing, like, what's the structure of that data? Um, you know, mm-hmm. DRB doesn't care.
4: No, one of the questions I had when I was watching your talk was that, you know, you were talking about the things that uh, RabbitMQ provided in terms of features and the value that they had for solving the problems that you were dealing with. And, and you know, totally made sense. But the if I had been in the room, the question I would have asked would be, how hard would it have been to implement equivalent functionality on top of DRB as opposed to going with a really different technology
1: Right I mean, like, and yeah,
4: um I mean you I mean you could have built yeah. all that stuff in Ruby on top of DRB.
1: Yes, and actually uh so the kind of funny thing about that talk was that the the talk directly after mine was was the talk by the creator of DRB, um Masatoshi Seki, and um so we actually got to meet because he really liked my talk and we chatted. And so we talked a lot about some of the other things and you know, uh, and his talk actually showed me even more things you can do with DRB that I hadn't even really been aware of. But he pointed me it to a lot of the work that's uh, done by Rinda and Rinda Ring, uh, that provides some of the same um, tools as, or some of the same uh, abilities as RabbitMQ, but within DRB. So in this case, you you know Rinda provides you with this tuple space where you can store data and grab data out of it. But at the end of the day, one of the really important things that RabbitMQ provided us that uh, DRB just never could for our use case is the fact that we also uh, have processes running that were written using C and C plus plus, and um, you know, DRuby is Ruby only, and so the no matter how much I love it, I can't use it to to communicate with that, those processes.
4: Okay, that's that's. Great. So, I you, know, you can you can create equivalent feature set, but it's still a Ruby only solution, so you can't integrate with other languages. Okay. So
0: okay. Uh, this kind of uh, along the same topic, uh, one of the reasons we decided to do this episode is I actually made a tweet a while back about DRB being a hacker's tool, and and there was kind of a conversation, and several people came back on me right away with about its poor reliability. And I was talking to that a little and Davey kind of got pulled into that conversation. So let's talk about reliability. What do you think about that, Davey?
1: So I personally have never had a, any issues with uh, DRB's reliability, but I will throw up a giant caveat over that whole thing in that uh, the way that um, our applications are used are do not have to deal with any sort of high levels of throughput. So we know very exactly how much data and how many calls are going to be um, kind of going through the system and it's you know way, way below any sort of threshold of high throughput. And as far as that goes, uh, you know, the I've actually never seen uh DRuby fail to connect and return the correct response as long as both the client and the server were up.
0: Yeah, I've actually been thinking a lot about this and cause I too perceive it as, as fairly reliable. Obviously there's the performance issue, which you definitely hit on there. You know, in order to make these calls, it ends up marshaling all of the arguments and, and details of the method call, passing that over the wire, reconstructing it on the other side and stuff. So there's definitely a performance penalty to pay. And if you're in a super tight environment where you got to pass a lot of messages fast, it's probably just going to fall down and die. And then we talked earlier about how, you know, if a method's not there, if you can't contact that object at that time, you're going to get some kind of exception or something, which is similar to what would happen if you were using something like HTTP, right? You'd get some kind of exception. It's going to be a different kind of exception. But I, I was actually thinking about this, what makes people perceive it as kind of that way. And my theory is that it's the how it hides the details from you. Like, that, you know, it does it do a retry when it fails to reach something? Like, does it try again? We don't really know that, just at least not intuitively, right? Whereas if we use some other kind of library, we probably have to set, like, a retry count or uh something like that. But because of DRB's kind of behind-the-scenes-ness, we don't really know what all it's going through, and so we feel kind of disconnected from that process. Do you think that makes sense?
1: I think that definitely makes sense, and um, it is definitely true. Uh, you know, Deer provides you a very specific set of tools, and if you want more things around that, you're going to have to write that code yourself. And a lot of that, um, you know, any like you said with the the error catching and the retries, um, you know, that's code that you would have to write yourself uh, for sure. I actually will point out, though, that, that in, in my opinion, or at least, uh, the, the feedback we've gotten from our customers is that DRuby's latency is actually really good. Um, and you know, we're talking about people who are trying to start up live streaming events and are very, like, they have people out there looking at the latency of the whole system from when they press a button to when they get video out the other end and, um, and the DRB portion of that has never even been a blip on our radar. You know, one thing
0: I noticed today was Eric Hotel this morning tweeted about how he's considering writing a DRB dump, which would be the TCP dump equivalent for DRB. And I think that might help with some of these visibility issues that we're talking about.
1: Yeah, I saw that too. And I got super excited because um, I definitely agree, uh, you know, having a tool that kind of allowed you to see kind of what was going on behind the scenes would be really amazing as far as development goes. So I was, uh, I told Eric, he should totally do that. Uh, Eric's actually been doing uh, quite well, I don't know if quite a bit is really the right word, but he's bef- definitely been developing in this area. He actually has been submitting some some patches to Rinda as well. So I'm kind of excited about that.
0: What about uh, durability? You know, if you do need something like durability with DRB, Rinda, etc., are you totally on your own there? Uh, what do you mean so, by
2: durability, James?
0: So uh, they need to persist data, right? Okay.
1: Right, and that's kind of the other uh, part of things that, that DRuby does not provide for you, and that was one of the other things I talked about in my talk about why we eventually decided to switch from DRuby to RabbitMQ was for the durability of, of the messages being sent. And I have only looked at, uh, Rinda kind of, um, more cursorily, uh, but it does seem like that can provide some of, uh, the durability requirements that you might need. It might be a good halfway point, um, where it's definitely, uh, more durable than, than just straight up DRB, but um, it may not be the same level of durability as RabbitMQ, for example.
5: The message will survive having like the server not be there right now, but it's not going to survive having the Rinda server down.
1: Exactly, and
3: persisting messages is is more of a question that like being able to to replay the message if the server went down. Is that what we're talking about?
1: Right. It's really, you know, is this, and this is a, a topic that I kind of talked with uh, James on Twitter about, which is, you know, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about data or are we talking about messages or signals? And, um, you know, are you sending, are you trying to send data over the system that, you know, you, you don't want to lose that data? And if uh, if the server isn't up when you're trying to send it, that that's a problem or are you trying to send a message and trying to perform an action at that point in time and um and in that case if the server is down then then there's no way that you could perform that action anyway and so um so in that case it doesn't actually matter the the, the signal it doesn't matter if you drop the signal at that point
5: can you make th- make um things a little bit more concrete for the listeners um and just give an example of the name of a class that you call methods on remotely and, and the name of one of those methods?
1: Sure. So um, the, the the classic example, so um, we do video transcoding. And so uh, we're managing a system uh, where we're, we're spinning up uh, live transcoding events uh, to stream out to CDNs, for example. And so uh, we may have a start button on the UI. And when you hit that start button, uh, you know it makes it hits an endpoint in our rail stack, and at that point the rail stack is going to connect to the daemons the Ruby server, the DRB server. it's going to get uh, and so when you when you create uh, when you create a call uh, to that server, so you're you're creating a DRB object, which is now uh, within your um, controller is basically you're kind of holding on a reference to the this object. In the demon that you're trying to communicate with, and so what at that point what we may send is um, that drb object dot launch event and give it the ID of the event that we're trying to start.
4: Okay, so so slightly different direction here that you know distributed programming is basically concurrent programming over a bunch of machines, and I'm I'm curious the you know if you know, like how much you of your time you have to spend dealing with. Know, sort of the fundamental concurrency issues when you're when you're doing programming in DRB. You know, do you have to worry about dining philosophers? Do you have to worry about? I don't know.
3: Yes, know, yes,
1: you do. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, the the DRB book actually has a whole kind of chapter on um on multi-threading and the the what you have to do in order to prevent um you know deadlocks and synchronization issues. Um, and so, uh, you know, DRB isn't itself going to manage um that sort of synchronization. However, um I do believe that Rinda provides a little bit of that. Uh, again, I haven't I've only read about it. I haven't tried it out myself, but I think Rinda adds a little bit more of the the synchronization on top of things. But if you're using DRuby directly, um you're gonna have to be implementing the the mutexes yourself. And so in our case uh within within our within our methods on the the daemon object, uh, we do use mutexes in order to protect protect the concurrency issues and make sure that um, you know if two different people are hitting that start button at the exact same time, that only one of them is going to be able to actually start the event.
4: Okay, that that's important. Do do you find that the granularity in DRB complicates that that you know that you can have you know we we're talking about those fine grained messages versus coarse grain messages. And that if, yeah, you know, so if I have some sort of server object that's talking with a, a client object or being talked to by a client object on another machine and they start having a conversation back and forth, I mean, do they need to have some sort of session key that they know, oh, okay, uh, you know, the, this, this uh, client's already in my mutex. It can, it can still talk back to me. Or, or is that just beyond the level that you try and deal with?
1: I think that's kind of beyond the traditional level. Um, it, that's kind of, if, if you're going to be making multiple calls back and forth, uh, between the two objects, then, then that's the, the point where you're going to need to be structuring your mutexes in, in, in a way that, you know, prevents a deadlock, for example. So that's going to be 100%, uh, on you. Though, you know, as far as, as my experience goes, we haven't ever Really run into that issue, I think you'd probably be able to get around having to to do some of that.
4: Okay, okay, but and but I think it that depends.
1: I like- um, depends a lot on the structure of of um, your distributed system as well. And so, um, after hearing about Martin Fowler being on the last episode, I spent you know a whole half hour last night uh, reading his stuff. And one of the things he does talk about is. Um, is you know how are you actually structuring your distributed system uh, are you structuring it in in the, in the w- way basically what he suggests is that your your distributed system is actually you know multiple copies of the same process running on multiple nodes and then you might have like one one controlling node that's kind of managing those multiple processes and that's actually exactly how we structure our distributed system as well and so in that case you can get around a lot of these issues because you, have, um, you know that the, the, the control messages are only coming from one location, and those messages are fanning out into individual nodes that don't actually care about each other. They are fully contained within um, themselves. And so that can help uh, avoid a lot of these issues. And I think Martin Fowler probably describes it a lot better than I can in his book.
0: Yeah, it's basically the threading problem, right? If you have a ton of objects that are sharing a bunch of data back and forth, that's always where threading falls down and dies, right? So same thing. If you have two processes, DRB is under the hood using threads to send these messages and stuff. If you have two processes that are sitting there chatting, ring back and forth to each other, you're going to have to worry about all that threading stuff. Whereas, you know, if you do the typical data flow one way through kind of stuff, then it's not really a big deal.
1: We've also structured our system so that it becomes... Uh, the, the decision on which node is going to be running a certain task is decided much more early early on in the process to try and avoid a lot of these pitfalls of of you know two different nodes like fighting over the same object for example
4: okay so i, I want to get back to to fundamentals just a little bit we've talked about the um uh, some of the magic that goes on with drb and you know we've defined it it, but uh, i don't think we've really dug into like how the magic works and you know we've we've used i think we've used the terms proxying and marshalling but um it w- i think it'd be great to, to like break it down just to you know like to the next level so so people can get an idea of just how magical this stuff is do, do you want to talk about that davy
1: yeah they, i can know, talk about it a little bit um hopefully i get the majority of the details right it's a uh, there's a, definitely some subtle interactions that can go on. So um, so we all probably know that Ruby itself, um, when it passes value, uh, passes by, by reference all the time, when you pass an object within a method, um, it's pass- passing that actual object. And if you modify that object, then the the original object is modified as well. And you have to explicitly call, you know, dot .dupe or something like that on the object in order to get passed by value. So. Uh DRuby attempts to pass by reference as much as possible. And uh, it does this using um, Marshall Dump and Marshall Load. Um, so the, the client will dump the object using Marshall Dump or uh, yeah, Marshall Dump and then pass so you get the string out, basically the string representation of that object. And that's actually what DRB passes over the line to the server. And then the server attempts to load that using Marshall Load. And so that's the point where in you know you need to have that same object and the same you know class definition on the server in order for marshal load to work properly however Divi, is-, Divi, is that passed by reference or passed by value?
0: My instinct says that's passed by value because if you modify the object on the other side, the change would not be propagated back. Am I wrong
1: I think this is true, and this is the point where I get a little bit confused um. When they're talking about the the different subtle differences between how DRuby passes different objects. So, um, because, yeah, I view, that,
0: I view that case that you just described as pass by value because it's kind of like you said, where if I'm calling something that would normally be passed by reference and I want pass by value, then I add a dot dupe on it, right? Well, in this case, the Marshall process is basically a dot dupe, right? Because it Pulls the internal guts out, shoves them through the wire, and then reconstructs it on the other side. So it kind of makes a duplicate. So to me, I think that's passed by value. It is extremely confusing because the way the the other one is passed by reference, right? Which DRB kind of pulls off with DRB undumped and proxy objects and stuff. But it's kind of weird because in its layer, it's actually passing a totally different thing, you know, that makes it look like pass by reference, right? It's all very complicated.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, you know, even it's attempting when you talk about pass by reference, you know, there are two different processes. There's it's it's impossible for it to actually be passing the, the by reference in the conventional sense. It's really just what it attempts to have it look like to you, the user. And that of course makes it very complicated to talk about. Um, yeah, it's, it's,
5: you might also call it pass by proxy.
1: Right. Where okay, you, yeah,
5: prox- That's more typically correct. I think a proxy on the server side and a proxy on the cl- on the client side.
1: Right. And I think maybe that's kind of what the what the Marshall allows you to do is because it is kind of like pass by, you know, it's it's trying to mimic that object as much as possible and trying to kind of hide the details from you. Um, well,
5: I mean, if, if if you are marshalling up the whole object, then I think it would be safe to say it's it's passed by value, although I'm not exactly sure how, how it works. I don't know if it sub- then substitutes associ- associations with proxies or not, um, or if it ever tries to serialize out a whole tree.
0: If it serializes a whole tree all at once, then the objects will be correctly associated on the other side, I believe, because... Marshall basically handles that itself. It it uses the references, and so when it okay. reconstructs, it puts it back. But if you if you're talking about you know you marshaled some tree that's also a part of some other tree that you marshaled before, then those would not be linked up on the other side. Is my yeah. understanding?
4: It, okay. Well, and and that's that's sort of a policy decision when you're building your your API. Is you know where where do you where do you cut through the object graph? And you know, if it's not completely self contained.
5: Yeah. Could... And that's and that's where that discussion with with Martin Fowler of uh you know remote facades comes in, I think.
4: Constructing yes, that's that. a, yeah, that's exactly the remote facade pattern.
5: Yeah, and it's it's definitely a good idea to kind of build something intended to be public facing, you know, to be API facing rather than try to pretend that that uh those objects are really going to be just like local references i will say while we're talking about marshalling um that's where things can get can get really hairy if you are passing anything other than you know like basic data types because that's that's particularly where the uh versioning issues come in you know if you have a if you have a, a domain object on both sides of the connection but you've pushed to, you know, you've pushed new code to one side of the connection more recently than the other side. That's where things can, can get really interesting.
1: Yes. And that's yeah. definitely where, where, where landmines live. But kind of back to some of the internals and some of the features that, that DRuby does provide for you. So, um, so one thing that, um, that it does when you're, when you're actually passing the object over, um, if, if it doesn't have, if that object isn't defined at that point in time, um, it will actually kind of hide that error for you and store the the marshal string and uh and and not raise an error at that point in time. It's only when you actually try and call a method on that object does it actually try and like that that's the point when you you, you know you have to have the object defined by that point. Um and so so at that point that's when it'll it'll actually retry the marshal load Um, to try and reload it. So you have a kind of a window basically of where you could send over a class definition and load it up um, between when you're actually sending the object, which I think is kind of, kind of cool.
4: Yeah. Hey, hey, Davey, um, since we're, since it seems like we're getting close to the end of the conversation, how do you recommend people get started if they want to try something in DRB? What's a, what's a good way to ease into it or or should they just jump in or, you know, what's the way to get going?
1: Uh, well, it's, you know, it's already in standard lib, so you don't need to download anything. You know, you can, it is, you know, pretty easy to get the a standard, you know, client server, uh, two dummy test scripts up and running and take you five minutes to start playing around. The the D Ruby book actually provides a lot of kind of fun examples and shows kind of some of the other weird things you can do with Ruby. So um, that might help get, you know, some of the, the juices going on, you know, the sort of what's possible with druby including some really interesting uh, concepts where they're actually passing you know standard in and standard out between the two objects as well which miraculous enough does work um even though I feel like it shouldn't
3: okay.
4: <laughs> that's crazy wait wait you can write to standard out on a different machine yes you can yes, that's <laughs> one of the
0: examples in the book drb <laughs> recognizes it and throws a proxy across the wire and then uh you they end up writing to that proxy, which then it shuttles the calls back to the client, does the writing on the client.
4: Yeah. That 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 sounds like a lot of opportunity for mischief.
0: <laughs> it's awesome.
4: <laughs> the,
0: um one, okay. one other point on that DRuby book, we talked a lot about durability earlier, and the author of DRuby has another system called Drip. And Drip is actually can almost be thought of as a durability layer on top of Renda. So
4: uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Hey, did did we um did we actually uh, reference the D the D Ruby book on the call yet? Yeah, I know we talked about it on the pre-call. Did we did we uh, give people an actual reference to the book? Nope. So. We
2: just did. We'll put a link in the show notes. Okay, so there's, so who wrote the D Ruby book? Uh,
1: Masatoshi Seki wrote the original D Ruby, D Ruby book, but that was in Japanese. The translation came out uh, more recently, and it was translated by Makoto um, Inui.
4: Okay, cool. And uh, and and that's a uh, pragmatic programmer's book. To, yep. Yeah, and, and as long as we're talking about books, there's a there's another book uh, called Distributed Programming with Ruby by Mark Bates, um, and it's one of the Addison Wesley you know red cover uh, Ruby series books, and it's a pretty lightweight book. It's you know um, you know. Just over 200 pages. And it's, I don't, I don't, you know I haven't read the Druby book, even though James says it's awesome. And, uh, but the, the, this distributed programming with Ruby is uh, more of an overview of a lot of different distributed technologies. So it covers DRB and Rinda and, you know, a bunch of different things. So it's a, I think it's more of a good, uh, get the lay of the land kind of book.
0: I've got one more question for Davey. We talked a little bit about how you use DRB and, and, uh, I think people are probably familiar with some uses we see, like in our spec and stuff like that. But my opinion is that it, it doesn't get used as much as you think it would. Why do you think that is?
1: That's a really good question. And, um, kind of this could spin off into a whole other discussion if we wanted to, which I don't think we do. But, um, you know, I think one of the, the main things is that you know, if, if you're a Ruby programmer, probably good, uh, you know, 90% chance or 95% chance that you're a Rails developer. And, um, and if you're using just, uh, like just, just doing standard Rails web development, I don't think there, there's often no, no need, no use for this sort of tool. Whereas, um, if you're doing more, you know, pure Ruby, um, Ruby work, that's kind of where a lot of, uh, these built-in tools would really help out a lot. And so, um, you know, it's. I would love to see the community the Ruby community uh, start using Ruby in a much more broad sense um, rather than sticking with the Rails silo um, and I think if, if we did that if we found you know, other cool things to do with Ruby that we would see the uses of, of things like uh, DRuby and Rinda and Drip and all of these things we'd really be able to take advantage of those in a much more broader sense. Great answer.
2: All righty. Well, uh, this seems like a good breaking point. Let's go ahead and get into the picks. Avdi, what are your picks?
5: Uh, I think I just have one, which I don't think I've picked before. There's a service called uh, Cloudflare, which I've been using for a while now. And uh, basically, it's basically just a CDN, uh, but it's it, their basic service is free. And uh, the cool thing about it is that you can, if you have some site that's mostly or all static content, uh, you can throw it on like cheap hosting on DreamHost or or, uh, you know, single Heroku instance and then get a free Cloudflare account and basically make it, you know, traffic proof because they bear the brunt of all the traffic and they do a lot of other cool stuff because like since they, um, they actually process quite a lot of the internet's traffic at this point, they're able to spot people that are attacking other sites and then those people will automatically be t- turned away from your site as well. So, um, useful service when you're trying to host static content.
4: That, that's cool. That I, I remember when they first appeared, they had some um, issues with like SSL and HTTPS. Have they Have they resolved that? You can Can you now use it with an HTTPS interface?
5: Yeah. As a matter of fact, that's actually one of the other things that's nice about them is that they're a particularly convenient way of slapping SSL on top of a uh, a non-SSL site. Oh, cool. I mean, so, like, yeah, if, if you don't even want to think about SSL with Roku, you can just uh, put up a regular site and then uh, put Cloudflare SSL on top of it. Cool. James, what
2: are your picks?
0: Keeping in with our theme of this episode of cool things hidden in Ruby standard library, uh, I found this awesome article on TSort the other day, uh, which is a topological sort that is in Ruby's standard library. And I've known it was there for like ever and ever, but I just never knew how to use it actually or what it was. Um, and, uh, this is a cool article from Adam Sanderson on how to use it. And it's actually pretty darn cool. Then, uh, just some more fun stuff. I've run into some crazy cool videos lately of kids talking about their schooling and stuff like that. Quasi hacker related. And uh, so one is hack schooling, uh which is about this uh kid who kind of has his own method of learning that he uh, basically pulled from hacker culture uh, and it's really cool. uh, the other video that you shouldn't miss is uh this thirteen year old girl. Who uh, she learns how to program Python and builds the game of life, and she goes through these you know natural steps from you know outputting uh, ASCII in the terminal up to you know uh, GUI output, and she just doesn't stop there. So she gets a Raspberry Pi and hooks it up to a bunch of LEDs to you know doing actual LED display of the game of life. It's just out of control. Thirteen year old girl hacking software and hardware. Awesome stuff. That's my picks.
2: Nice.
4: Josh, what are your picks? Okay. Let's see. My, f- my first pick... Uh, I, got, I got a couple. I'll go through them quickly here. Uh, first pick is Airplane. It's, it's uh, E-R-R-P-L-A-N-E dot com. And uh, you know, former guest rogue Paul Dix. Uh, this is his new startup. And uh, it looks like he's, he's gone off to compete with the likes of of New Relic and Labrado and a bunch of other people all at the same time. So, so Airplane is uh, uh, basically... Um, app monitoring for your rails application and you know it's the typical thing where it just hooks into your server processes and collects data and ships it off to their servers and then you can go to their website and you know take a look at all of your data displayed in very pretty pictures and it's the you know it's still very early days they're in beta uh, but uh, so far i'm liking it it was really easy to set up and i like the ui it's very simple and You know, they're, they're trying to give you much more detail about what you're seeing in the data and have it be, uh, more useful for low-level stuff than, say, you know, New Relic does. But, um, so, so far it's, uh, it's good. I've been liking it. The next thing, uh, that I have is, uh, somebody responded to a tweet of mine with this. It's, uh, these are, uh, version badges for projects on GitHub. And, uh, Oliver Lacan, uh, pointed me at this and, so, you know, basically you, you drop this, uh, you know, little snippet of code into your readme on GitHub and it puts a uniform appearance of, you know, what the Ruby gem is that your, that your repo is for and what version it is and a link to the uh, rubygems.org page and all that. So the, this is something that I was wanting GitHub to do, but apparently somebody did it open source and that's pretty awesome. And then, Now, um, now
0: GitHub can just buy them. Yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. They can acquire them. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the uh, uh is not that what open source is for? <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, right. And then I have kind of a, a fun, geeky one um this is uh, uh, discovered on the call earlier that people don't know about Scott Kim and his inversions. And you know, so there's these this style of uh of uh textual artwork called ambigrams. I think um Douglas Hofstetter coined that term. Yeah, and it's sort of like a visual palindrome where you draw a word uh, reflected or rotated around some, you know, you know, to get some symmetry, and it reads the same either, you know, upside down or backwards or rotated about. And there's some really, uh, yeah. Scott just did some amazing work uh, drawing some really cool things, and it's kind of one of my goals in life to, you know, have a company logo that's an ambigram. Right? (laughs) Not a great goal, but. It's there. <laughs> uh, anyway, so yeah, Scott Scott uh, just did a lot of really cool stuff with with these, and it's worth going and checking out the pages if uh, if uh, you want some cool visual geekery.
0: The ambigrams are well known from Dan Brown's uh, Angels and Demons book, right? They were in, they were the like brands that the Illuminati were branding people with. Were these ambigrams?
4: Yeah. Wow. Oh, I did, I, I don't read Dan Brown, but that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> It was pretty cool. Yeah. If I ever got a tattoo, it would probably be, uh, be one of, uh, Scott's designs. I think
2: they're very cool. Okay. So that's it for me this week. All right. Um, Katrina, what are your picks?
3: So we announced today that, uh, the episode was about distributed regex. And so the whole episode has been about distributed and I'm going to add the regex part. Um, (laughs) The 2013 MIT mystery hunt was on a while back, uh, and it's over But one of the puzzles that came out of there was a regex puzzle. And the link is no longer up on CoinHeist.com. So I put it on, um, I'm hosting it, the PDF of this puzzle. And it is just, it's just fun. So I'm going to link to it.
2: Nice. All right. So um, I've got a couple of picks. My first pick is an app called Hazel. Uh, It's basically, you can think of it as kind of like your inbox rules for sorting your email, except it works on file system folders. So um, I had a big honking mess of a downloads folder on my computer. And so I got Hazel and I pointed it at my downloads folder. And then I just kind of worked through things and started setting up rules for the different types of things that were in there. And before too awful long, I had cleared out about 50 gigabytes of crud that had been sitting in there. Um, and it put all the stuff in the right place. So just to give you an example, um, if I download a zip file, then Hazel will find the zip file, and it will automatically unzip it for me. If that generates anything like a .dmg or a .app, then it will put those in the right place. So a .app will automatically put into my applications folder. The .dmg will automatically put it in with all of the other um, installers, the same with, like I think it's a .pkg file if it's an image, then it will put it over with the other, um, images, um, in a folder that I just, you know, go sort through periodically, but then it's a junk drawer full of unsorted uh, images as opposed to a junk drawer full of unsorted everything. And so, uh, I've been really, really happy with it. Um, just super excited about, uh, the options. I need to point it at my, um, documents folder now and get that cleared out because, um, I started moving stuff over there, and Documents folder became another junk drawer for me. So um, I'm working on that. Another thing that I've been playing with lately is um, the Amazon Web Services, and I've been really happy with the uh, Amazon S3. I've been putting all the materials up for uh, Rails Ramp Up up there um, so that my students can get at them, and it seems to work really, really well. And I've, I've had no complaints about people being able to get the stuff and I don't have to upload it to a server where I have more limited space. So uh, uh, AWS S3 is an, my other pick. Davey, what are your picks?
1: So we've already talked about it uh, pretty much throughout the whole uh, podcast, but uh, my first kind of official pick is is the D. Ruby book. It's such a cool book. Um, I really like the tone. It's really nice and accessible, and uh, one thing I do really like about it is it walks you through a lot of the, the error cases. Um, kind of walks you through examples where things fail in addition to um, how to fix fix those issues. So that's one thing that I really like. So if anyone is interested in trying some of this out, check out that book. Uh, second one is uh, I wanted to point out the software I've been using to generate all of my slides for my presentations. And this was what I used for my RubyConf talk, which is reveal.js. Um, and I really like it a lot because um, I, you know, PowerPoint is terrible. People still fight with Keynote, and at least with Reveal.js, you're fighting with HTML, which we all know how to love to love to fight with. And so, uh, I really like the the power and flexibility that it gives, uh, and also gives cool transitions that that I like that aren't too aren't over the top. And the last pick that I wanted to to send out is non-technical in general. Um, it's a sweet music video by uh, a band called Darling Side, which is a group of uh, guys that I went to college with and they're doing awesome things now. And it's called uh, the ancestor and you can find it on Vimeo and it's just a really, it's a beautiful song, beautiful video. I think more people should see it.
2: Nice. All right. Well, um, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the show. Um, thanks for coming, Davey. Re- really appreciate it. It's, it's been an interesting uh, foray into a topic that I, Hadn't really explored. So,
1: yeah, thanks for having me on. It was really fun to chat about all this with you guys.
2: All right. Well, next week we are talking about something. It's just going to be us, it's not going to be a guest. Um, we're still discussing what we're going to talk about, but it looks like we might talk about Ruby 2. It just depends on whether or not we all get a chance to play with it. But uh, anyway, look forward to that. Um, go sign up for Ruby Rogues Parlay, and uh, we'll catch you all next week.